Alrighty, party people, we are back here doing the damn thing. That was terrible. <laughs> Alright, well, anyway, we are back this week with another podcast, and I have been procrastinating this again, kind of like I have been doing and not doing this weekly, but I think once I get back into a schedule, I will be much, 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 much better at actually doing this every week because I, you know, am finding any excuse to to procrastinate this, which I, I don't want to do, but I am doing. But either way, not a lot has really happened. It's kind of been, you know, the usual. I don't know if any, you know, if anyone's listening to this, if you're like right after graduating college, I'm in the spot where I don't really know what I want to do. And I feel just so like lost and every day is just exactly the same, but also just so stressful. And that's pretty much what it's been like recently. Even though I'm like going through a movement that I'm very happy about and I am very excited for like the next step, but just like the past like four months pre this have just been, wow, just so incredibly boring. And it's just, you know, we're just trying to make it through. I feel like a lot of people are feeling like that, but I just needed to, you know, say that, and that probably made no sense, but that's totally okay. Anyway, in other news, suppose it's getting towards Christmas and towards the end of the year, and I feel like this time is also very stressful just between the holidays because there's just so much going on at all times, and a lot of people have to, like, go hang out with their family or go hang out with their friends, and you have a lot of plans, and you can't just sit by yourself in, like, silence enough, and... That really sucks. It's very stressful. You know, the seasonal depression's kicking in. You gotta spend a lot of gifts on people for the holidays. You gotta go spend time with people all the time because you're just busy. And you just don't get a second to just sit, eat Chinese food and drink LaCroix and binge Netflix shows. And this is the best time to do it because it's so cold. But I'm also saying that as I live in Wisconsin and the winters here are so incredibly frigid and awful all the time but it's also very unpredictable because today I think it was like 25 like felt like 15 or whatever and I feel like a week or a week and a half ago we got it it was like 60 degrees and it just makes no sense this is just I'm this is gonna be my first winter without like a Wisconsin winter too because I also like didn't really go away for school I was pretty much moved to a colder spot that I grew up in And this is, I think, going to be my first winter where, like, we don't really get snow and we have a pretty mild winter. And I'm so excited. I'm, like, not going to bring my coats with me right away and I'm just not going to worry about it. And I'll probably be the only one, like, walking around out there in shorts when it's, like, 50 because that's, like, spring to me at this point. But I don't know if any, like, people from, like, if you're from a cold climate, when you, like... It's a typical Midwestern on vacation when you see them in Florida and it's 70 degrees and they're in like a tank top and shorts. Like the people that live in Florida all the time or live in New Mexico or Arizona, they're used to the heat and they don't, when it's 50, it's cold. But for like a Midwesterner going down to Florida in like April and it's like 65, 70, I'm putting shorts and a tank top on, bitch. It's been like negative 30 for three months. And I just think it's so funny every time. When we were, and I was in high school one time, this was the first time I left the country, typically. Midwest also going on spring break. We went down to Punta Cana. And it was so fun. 
but you could always tell the people that were like from the Midwest or from, I used to say the Midwest, but somewhere cold, north. And they would just be stark white and you're like, oh, they must have just got here. Or they'll be just beet red and look like a little tomato and you're like, well, they're probably leaving soon because by the time you're down there for oh, five days a week, whatever you go for, are just, you know, fragile, like cold skin is not used to the sun and the heat. And I, my like whole chest blistered when I went down there and then it peeled all the way off. And someday when I get skin cancer, which my family is extremely susceptible to, it's going to be from that. I know it is. There's no denying it. It's just the, the trials and tribulations of people who don't see the sun for four months out of the year. It's terrible. That was enough rant for something that is completely under my control. And I could just move or could have moved a long time ago. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do. At least I guess we'll have like a white Christmas or a white like holiday season. It's always nice to have snow during the holidays and then like after New Year's, it can just get up, get up, get up, get up. But yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I guess kind of there hasn't been a lot of cool true crime, not cool, I, new and breaking true crime news so much. Um, the Idaho case, the murder of the four college students is still unsolved there's been a lot there's been so every like news thing or like podcast thing i like read like read or listen to is always like be careful what you consume and don't believe online like everything you read online i'm just like i just don't see how this is still a problem that people just like cite your sources i mean i just i say that but like i need to be better at it too but just like read credible news but people see something on twitter and be like oh something 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 and then say something and it's just I don't know. It's just crazy. But they, the police are always saying to, uh, like, watch your sources because there's been so many, I guess, opinions in this that will, like, spark up and take off and then everyone thinks it's true and then the police have to address in a press conference and specifically be like, no, they did not see, like, Sasquatch before this so-and-so whatever happens. Like, people are just so, like, susceptible to this news. And I'm totally at fault at this sometimes, but... It just makes me sad because also this case is still unsolved and the families are all like kind of pretty involved in this and I just can't imagine like what they're going through right now. It seems just scary. And that town would be so scary right now. Also something, um, this was something that I hadn't, I've definitely heard of before and like podcasts or like read about, but I guess I never really like deep dove into it and it wasn't something that like I really remembered very well. But once I heard this, the boy in the box was a murder in Pennsylvania um, that what occurred like about 60 years ago. And on December 8th, they finally discovered the identity of this boy who they found. And long story short, his name is Joseph Augustus Zarelli. He was born um, January 13, 1953. But on December 8th, they finally um, kind of discovered this boy was the remains of this famous boy in the box murder in Pennsylvania. So on February 25th of 1957, a naked, beaten, and emaciated boy was found in like a cardboard box near Susquehanna, Susquehanna Road, um, which is northeast of Philadelphia. The boy's between four and six years old. Um, his body had recently, possibly even after the death, had a haircut. His nails were trimmed, and there was definitely signs of like physical abuse and starvation. His body had like scars, which most of them were surgical, around his like ankle, groin, and chin. And they noticed that the cause of death was blunt force trauma. 
Um, this body was first discovered by someone checking his muskrat traps, which were apparently illegal because this guy found the body and then didn't turn it in because he was scared that they would get mad at him because of his muskrat traps. And it's like, sir, there are bigger problems at hand. Um, but then again, this college student who was following a rabbit who we noticed disappeared over here and went in the muskrat trap, found this, this body and reported it. And he said he was like thought about doing the same thing, not reporting this. But he's like, then he heard about the disappearance of Mary Jane Barker, who was a four-year-old girl who went missing um, around the same time. And he kind of heard about that case. But this case is also interesting. And I like checked into this quick and this um, little girl, Mary Jane Barker, was a four-year-old, and she went missing, and they found her in a vacant house near her home on March 3rd, so that was after this boy's body was discovered, and he kind of, like, thought, like, maybe this is this girl, um, but her death ended up actually being ruled an accident, um, because she was found in, like, a closet in this, like, other house that was, like, by her house, and when they opened up the doors, there was this little, her dog that she was like out playing with when she went missing, hopped out like totally fine. And this was like a while, cause this was at least like, whatever, five days, I don't know the exact time from like when the body was discovered of the boy and when she was found. So she was missing before this. Um, they were like, oh, the dog like maybe got, was getting fed somehow or like got taken out and put it back because they were like, he seems fine, he didn't have starved. So they killed this dog. To, like, look at the in contents of his stomach to, like, determine, like, if he could have survived or if he was fed. And the dog just could go a long time without eating. And I was, like, that's just... I was interesting, like, that is something that... I feel like that's, like, such a science experiment. It's like, oh, let's just cut him open and see what the insides look like. But anyway... Um, the Boy in the Box case was widely distributed but never solved since it um, was discovered in February 25th of 1957. The crime scene was searched by 270 police academy recruits who discovered like more evidence such as like a man's blue corduroy cap, a child's scarf, and like a man's like white handkerchief, like a little fancy little handkerchief with a little G in the corner. Um, the police even like distributed a post-mortem photo of the boy so they took his body and like dressed him up and seated him which is so creepy and you can like see these pictures and they're very like odd very off-putting very scary i feel very bad that they like did that i mean i guess i could see like the you don't have like the facial aging kind of thing that they can do now probably so they had to do this but it was just distributed a picture of this poor this poor dead boy they also finally made a facial reconstruction on March 21st of 2016. So this is what, like 50, 50, 60 years after? That's crazy. That's so long. And the identity still remained unknown. There were many theories done to swirl around who this boy was or what happened to him. Um, they even brought like a psychic in. And then there was also a theory that they kind of got from a woman named Martha in February of 2002. So this Martha claimed that her mom, who was abusive and like suffered from mental illness, purchased a boy and subjected him to physical and sexual abuse for two and a half years. And until one night, the boy vomited while he was like eating his dinner. He was eating baked beans and on the table. And then the mother began to beat him and he eventually hit his head on the floor and he kind of like didn't get back up. And so she put him in the bath to like clean him up and the boy reportedly died, according to this Martha. The boy in the box had baked beans in his stomach when they did his like autopsy and his fingers were like water wrinkled. 
So that kind of was like, led them to have a little support for this woman's story. And there was supposedly a witness to like when this body was dumped, but the police like were never to verify it from like Martha. She said like someone saw us dump the boy's body, but they could never find someone. And a forensic artist named Frank Bender theorized that the boy could have been raised as a girl. And like, as I said before, the boy's hair was like cut quickly and kind of like hastily. And he kind of theorized that like maybe that was because his hair was long and they didn't want that to be like a defining factor. So they like cut it really quick. And he apparently his eyebrows were also like styled, like he had plucked eyebrows, which I don't know why more dudes just don't like pluck some of those eyebrows because some of them are just like wild. I mean, girls are maybe plucking our eyebrows all the time. It's terrible. You can at least pluck like three hairs off there and just shape them up. Anyway, the boy in the box was eventually buried in Potter's Field and the body was exhumed in 1998 to gain like DNA from the enamel and a tooth. And then the body was reburied in Cedarbrook. And when the boy was reburied, the coffin, headstone, and funeral was donated by the son of the guy who buried the boy the first time. Just kind of like a good little like feel good story. He just kind of kept it up, you know. Um, but then the body was exhumed again in 2019 to retrieve more sample. So this this poor boy's body just kept getting dug up. Um, genealogists used Joseph's DNA to link um, him to like possible relatives and then establish the identity of his parents. And they discovered that the the eventual boy Joseph, um, his parents were dead, um, but some like siblings and of the mother and father are still alive. So they're kind of like not releasing their name obviously, but kind of like linking them. But they also kind of funny thing discovered that the boy never got issued a social security number. So I don't really know what that means about his identity, but so this case is still technically unsolved. Like they don't have this boy's murder, but they finally have identified this body after, what was it? Like 60 some years. Um, and, like, his headstone at, like, both the cemeteries were, like, the boy in the box or, like, unknown. Like, they never put a name on him. But, like, it was kind of a, not a famous, but a very well-known, like, headstone kind of thing. Um, but it's good that that's kind of crazy. Them, I just, it makes me happy to see some of these cold cases getting a little bit of progress made in them because of DNA. And, like, they caught, I think it was, like, Golden State doing the same DNA. Like, the guy was dead, but they were still, like, able to be, like, okay, well, this was him. Like, this is what happened to him. It's good, you know, seeing some of these, get some closure. Go science. We love some, you know, DNA science. But speaking of science, another aspect, chemistry. See that segue here? Let's go. So... One of my big staple Mount Rushmore so far, I'd say, like, true crime stories that I always just kind of, like, awkwardly will, like, tell people when I'm uncomfortable and I just met them, which means they're uncomfortable and then I'm even more uncomfortable, is the story of the Angel Nakers of Negreve. Um, so Negreve, Hungary, Negrev, Negreve, I'm pretty sure it's Negreve, um is a town was a town is a town what at the time was a town about 800 people and this is a little southeast of budapest this town was small enough and very poor that it did not have like a resident doctor and eventually this woman named zuzana fazakis um came along and she did not have much of like a known past besides that her husband had gone missing many years before um, but she was a midwife and people didn't really know where she came from, but she came with like some good references and like experiences with like renowned kind of doctors in the area. 
And at the time, like a midwife was a pretty respectable position, but it wasn't like often for women sometimes. Um, it was recognized, recognized as an occupation for women in Egypt and was kind of like a renowned position. But when in like in like Rome, they reserved it for like enslaved women as it was kind of like a, a poor job to do or a less less esteemed job. And sometimes eventually it was then associated with witchcraft in the medieval period, which kind of led to more regulations be putting on. And then, you know, of course, dudes started taking over the role and that kind of gave birth to doctors who kind of took over the role of the traditional midwife. Um, so then it was all dudes and that kind of, you know, remained for a while. But before that, it was the midwife, which was primarily a woman's job. Um, midwives remained prominent in small communities as like doctors kind of took over um, and were often practitioners for abortion, kind of like our first little um, source of advice too for women outside of their family. And they were also kind of known as like a wise aunt. So they're just, you know, you're like Planned Parenthood of the day. We just needed them. We've always needed them. In this town where Zuzana eventually settled down, Negrev, Negrev, I really, you know, these. I'm so bad at this. I really should look these up. I will next time. That's my goal. I will look this up. But 1914 to 1929, women were married off in arranged marriages as young as about 14. And this area was like super Catholic. So divorce was not allowed. Even if like the husband was an alcoholic or super abusive or was cheating or was just really smelly and they didn't want to be with him anymore. Um, and this also area was very poor and newborns, newborn babies were seen as burdens. But also during this time, World War I occurred. And this area served as like a prisoner of war POW camp for like Russia and a little bit like Italy. And many of the women during the war became war widows and like their husbands were off and they kind of had the, the fields to like work. Eventually, all these prisoners of war kind of like got practitioned off to go work in their fields and the women kind of started to have affairs with these prisoners of war. The allied prisoners were sometimes, you know, having relations with these ladies they were working in the fields with and sometimes these women took three or four lovers at once which gave them you know some sexual freedom some liberation they all went through a bit of a hoe phase which we all need we all just you know need that hoe phase and especially these ladies over in here in hungary but as many as nine million men were drafted into the triple alliance from the former austro-hungarian empire and when these husbands after the war returned, the women were kind of like financially and emotionally independent. They, they had their little fling. They, you know, got something else, but they've not been getting for apparently from their piece of garbage, sometimes husbands, and they didn't want them to come back. The women did not want to return to their own old lives, kind of like serving their husbands. And since divorce was still an option in this very Catholic area, they were very upset, especially also since a lot of men suffered from what is now known as PTSD or other serious like physical or mental injuries. So the women were overburdened and they turned to Susanna Fizekis for some solutions. And Susanna, who sometimes one is apparently Julius um, Fizekis, um, the midwife, she was arrested during this time for at least 10 illegal abortions while these prisoners of war were in town and women, you know, 
or having more sex, getting more pregnancies, having more abortions. And Susanna was like, I got you. Um, she was arrested but never charged because the judges were kind of aware of everything going on in like the financial situation of the town. And they knew that these women were overburdened with all these children. And also that Mrs. Fazakis was also really the only medical professional kind of in their town and they kind of needed her. She, um, Susanna, finally discovered arsenic as a neurotoxin when she apparently reportedly used it first on a romantic rival, but it was also kind of suspect to these people that her husband had gone missing um, for reasons that they kind of found out later. What she did was she boiled flypaper and then skimmed off like the poisonous residue on the top and arsenic was kind of traditionally used medicinally and cosmetically for syphilis to skin whitening and even to treat some facial blemishes. So this was kind of used all over the place. But the first angel maker of Negrieve was Mrs. Takis, whose husband was a brutish and an alcoholic and apparently was quite the piece of garbage. It was kind of like coincidence. Susanna kind of gave her this arsenic and then it kind of led to more and more people kind of hearing about this by word of mouth. And they kind of eventually became the angel makers, self-proclaimed. And they had some like unspoken rules, like only married women could join and no husbands or like single women could join their, their little poisoning club. And they couldn't poison women or children. They could only poison their piece of poo-poo husbands. And women in happy marriages and spinsters were not um, to be informed of what they were doing. And a spinster honestly sounds like the, the most fun option to be at this point in time because you don't have to listen to your booty hole husband. You get to do what you want. You kind of like, I think, you know, I'm going off Bridgerton for this, but you can kind of just still live with your family, which sounds awesome. Just you're like a stay at home, just, teen for the rest of your life. You're just hanging out, but you're like 40. Awesome. So the arsenic that Susanna Fazekis was giving to these unhappy wives, arsenic, poisoning occurred through tainted water or like drink, and it kind of led to like vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, skin discoloration. It was often mistaken as like cholera or like any other kind of food waterborne illness at this time because they were running a plenty. She began like charging women to poison their unwanted husbands, but she was only like charging how much they could pay, you know, like tax brackets, I assume. She also promised these women that the arsenic, which they didn't know what it was, they didn't know it was arsenic. Zuzanne knew, but the women didn't really know what it was, but it, she promised them that whatever this poison was, was untraceable in the body. She never, yeah, told her women to do not get rid of your like parents or romantic rivals or children. Only use it to get rid of your husbands. Very simple rule. Eventually, uh, a lot of people were like using this and Susanna kind of needed a, an assistant. And Susie Ola, who was, an 18, was 18 years old when she first poisoned her much older husband, she began to aid Susanna and she would kind of like shield the like death certificates and kind of like forge them to make them seem more like an accident. They were kind of written off as like 
heart attacks or drownings when they would like just chuck somebody's body in the river, disease or like alcoholism. And the medical doctors like in the area were kind of overworked. So they just like didn't really pay attention to Negrieve. And the girl, Susie's son-in-law was like the village coroner. So he even like more helped to like cover these up. She'd just be like, oh, I'm strongly suggesting you that like this happened or she just had like access to the records but they had a pretty legitimate business going on here and eventually there was a lot of women murdering their husbands and Negrevwitz kind of dubbed the murder district and even like men in the area were like scared of getting married like it was like a death sentence they were like terrified because they thought they were gonna die and then as it kept going of course people started to break the rules and the angel makers started to kind of sway from their original like three rules no talking about fight club kind of situation they started killing lovers competition some girls talking to your boo you give her arsenic they started to kill their elderly parents they didn't want to care for anymore and their relatives that they didn't like their kids that you know cried too much and like disabled children there was even a story of marie cardos who killed her husband and her described as sickly 23 year old son and she just like took her kids her son's bed outside put him in the sun and was like spoon feeding him like poison soup. And then another woman, Maria Vega, who murdered her blind war hero husband because she was mad at him because he would complain very loudly when she had lovers in the house. Like this poor man is blind and he just like hears his wife going to town with some other dude in the other room. That's so sad. And then she poisons him. It kind of sucked. And then this woman, Maria, poisoned that young boisterous young lover of hers five years later. And the murders even kind of spread into the neighboring hound of Tiskert. Tiskert? Detectives noticed that the town of Negrieve was terrified of Fazekas. A local clergyman told detectives in 1937, quote, the, superst the superstitious peasants are terrified of her. They believe she has supernatural powers, and as her official capacity as a nurse and midwife gives her access to every family, she dominates the entire district. These villages, these villages, gentlemen, are utterly dominated by women, and the men are all afraid for their lives, according to like crime historian. And then in 1929, Hungary finished its like 10-year census, and they noticed that the death rate in Negrieve was like crazy high. So they kind of like set some people in to investigate, and the angel makers definitely eventually did get caught and Fazakis was named as the ringleader so they're not really like 100% sure how they all got caught um one theory is that a medical student in a neighboring town found like high arsenic levels in a body that he found like washed up on the riverbank you know like the thing that is crazy to me too is all the stories of how um, like the first doctors used to just be like stealing bodies and like grave robbing because they needed stuff to practice on. Like, can you imagine being a doctor back then would have been like kind of fun. Like you just had to run around body, body snatching because you got to practice doing stuff on something. And it's just, it's so creepy. Like to the origins of it are so like macabre. And I, I don't know. I kind of love it. It's kind of fun. But anyway, Bella Babo, Bado, a hung, uh, Hungarian-American historian, said that there was also like an anonymous letter sent to the local newspaper kind of talking about this mass murder. And villagers also were like sending letters to the authorities accusing women of poisoning. Oh, my God. 
Um, but there was no evidence to substantiate the claim since all like the cause of deaths were listed as natural. Detectives brought in Mrs. Sazbo, who was caught by visitors. She was trying to poison, and she, the visitors like noticed, and she eventually admit, admitted to the poisoning um, of trying to poison her husband and brother. And she kind of like outed Fazakis and Ola. And then the woman, Miss Sazbo, redacted her statement, claiming the police coerced her, which, you know, not surprising. Um, the woman was released, but they kind of also then started following Tzakis. Um, detectives like followed her and realized that this woman was stopping at all these homes on the way home. And she was like out alerting all the angel makers that she just got brought in was kind of like giving them a heads up but you know she didn't watch enough like breaking bad or criminal minds or whatever you want to say because the police were following her and they noted which home she stopped at they were onto her and balance kizoros who was an angel maker went to visit a chemist in the capital of hungary who informed her that arsenic could actually be found in the hair and nails of corpses a significant amount of time after they died. And then she came back and told Fazekas and Ola the news, and they gathered 13 angel makers to, like, shuffle headstones around in this graveyard. So, like, when they started exhuming bodies, some of them wouldn't have, you know, someone who was, like, loaded up with arsenic in it. But I think you can totally tell what, like, tombstones or headstones had been there for a while. But... They didn't shuffle them fast enough because the police came and they got caught. And when they exhumed a bunch of bodies, 46 out of 50 of them tested positive for the big A. Arsenic. Acid, not abstinence. Did you guys learn that in school? Like, they're on my way to not get pregnant. It's the big A. We had a guy in my, like, health education class who thought that the big A stood for another option of not getting pregnant and he said that really loud in our class and then he got taken to the office and didn't come back to sex education until we were on to like the next topic which was probably like dieting or something who knows but it was pretty funny oh, what a great time either way some studies suspect that about even 100 to 300 people could have been killed in these mass poisonings and so the detective rounded up Either like 34 or 26, depending on the source, women and one man who were all clients of Hazakis, and they were arrested and then subsequently convicted of murder. Ola gained the fear of the community um, that Fazakis had because before Fazakis could get brought in, she took a big old amount of arsenic and poisoned herself and died. So she really never even got brought to trial. But Ola kind of was now like top dog because her... Her boss died, and she apparently was, like, known, or the villagers kind of, like, believed that she kept poisonous snakes and lizards who were trained to climb into the beds of her enemies. So they kind of, like, they kind of were witch-hunting her. They kind of, they were scared of this lady. The grocer then was brought in during the trial, too, from a nearby town, and he testified that the group had bought flypaper from the store, and they found that more flypaper was sold in grave than the rest of Hungary, <laughs> like, combined. And so then eventually 12 of these people were sentenced to life, 8 were sentenced to death, and 2 of them were actually executed. Maria Gonia, a girl who was very young, like, 
and one of her fathers was called to investigate the angel makers. So she recalled like when this was going on and when all the bodies apparently began to be exhumed, she said, quote, the men's behavior to their wives improved marketably. So these dudes were pretty scared at the time. And that surprisingly, like women like murdering a bunch of their husbands is not uncommon in history. In Italy in the 17th century, 1600s, I hate that like century time scale, just say like the 1600s, whatever. Guilia, Guilia Tofana created aqua Tofana, which is arsenic and lead, and sold it to unhappy wives to give to their husbands. They added a lot to wine, and it was responsible for apparently 600 men's deaths in Rome. She was arrested and executed by the Papani authorities in 1651. In 1909 in Russia, Madame Popova killed over 300 men in like a murder for hire scheme for ladies who didn't like their husbands. She charged customers a nominal fee and then killed men with poisons, her hands, weapons, or she would hire an assassin, which is pretty badass. Eventually a remorseful customer turned her in, so apparently you know, buyer's guilt over an assassin. But the mob wanted to burn this Popova at the stake, but a czarist soldier saved her and sent her to a prison. And she was unremorseful till the very end and then got executed by the firing squad, which is also pretty badass. And honestly, I think that's the best way to go. Like, if you were to be executed, how would you want to go? Definitely not lethal injection, not the chair. A guillotine sounds terrifying. I think I'm going firing squad. It seems like the quickest and kind of the most badass. And I hope it would be in like a Western scene and to be all dusty and they're like, would like play. Oh, that would be perfect. Either way, another mass poisoning of the old hubbies occurred in a nearby town in Tizakert. And they exhumed a bunch of bodies around the same time that Miss Susanna was poisoning and the angel makers were working. And they found some arsenic, but no one was convicted. Bernick Guy G. Rogev, a historian in the 1950s, like met a man in prison and said that local women, quote, had been murdering their menfolk since time immemorial, which I had to look that up and apparently it means like since time started to be getting kept. And that's true. And in 1600 in France, white arsenic was known as poudre de secession, which was known as the inheritance powder. And excuse my bad French accent when I took it, I was told during my exam to sound less American, and I can't help it. I'm from Wisconsin. Arsenic poisoning also was something I kind of started to look up. I, you know, took some, took some chemistry classes in my day, but none of this means anything to me because I didn't remember any of it. So the mineral form of arsenic um, was known since like the 4th century BC, which is 400 to 301 BC. General Colar Albertus Magnus is usually credited with its discovery around 1250. Writings of Pericalesus, a physician alchemist in the Middle Ages, detailed like the first precise directions on how to prepare metallic arsenic. And Socrates, a Greek physician in the Roman Emperor Nero's court labeled arsenic as a poison in the first century, which is around like 1 AD. He died in 90 AD, so around zero. Is it just zero times zero? That's stupid. Either way. And the fact that I wrote down a Greek physician and the Roman emperor, I don't think that's right. Let me pause and I'll look. 
So I looked it up and he was a Greek physician on Roman Emperor Nero's court. Didn't know that was a thing. He apparently provided excellent descriptions of nearly 600 plants, including cannabis and a peppermint, which is exciting. Thank you, Wikipedia. He kind of described that the poison like lacks color, taste, and odor when mixed in food and drink. Um, this chemical is also ubiquitous in nature, so it's easily like available for everyone. And the symptoms when given in like big doses kind of mimic like food poisoning or other disorders, as I said before, cholera at the time, which are like abdominal cramps, diarrhea, vomiting, and often death from like shock. And if you give it in like a series of small doses, you kind of just like lose strength, are confused, and can get like paralysis. So it can work at different doses. The most common form of arsenic used was white arsenic or arsenic trioxide, which has a fatal dose that's like about the size of a pea, which is pretty badass. Arsenic causes sickness by disrupting the cell's metabolism, which causes the cells to thus die. These cells cannot be ingested by phagocytes, which kind of like clean up your your body of cells which leaves like dead matter kind of floating around arsenic this white arsenic is made by heating the arsenic ore which produce like a white crystalline powder that is soluble and undetectable key to make it poisoning and it has kind of been believed to be the cause of death for a lot of people throughout time political figures in the roman emperor the roman times lucius cornelius sulla to issue the lex cornelia which was probably the first law that said you can't poison people. <laughs> it is also rumored that Napoleon Bonaparte's death in 1821 was due to someone in his little administration or his little group poisoned him with arsenic. His hair has been tested apparently though and it tested negative. James Marsh created a test for arsenic in 1836. This test, since it was so accurate, decreased the use. After that, a lot of they noticed a lot of arsenic poisonings kind of decreased a little bit, but there obviously was still some remaining because this whole thing in Angel Makers of Negrieve occurred after this test was created. But yeah, that was kind of like, that story kind of was one of the first ones I really liked for like history stuff. And I think history, like old cold cases are really cool because like they definitely are just as crazy or even like crazier than like stuff happens now. There's just, the days have been wild. History's been wild, you know? So much, so much has happened. I guess I could cite my sources because I've literally forgotten to do that, I think, in everything. And I think I'm just gonna always kind of include these in like the description for any like articles you know you guys wanna read. The first thing I think I used was an all this interesting article by Bernadette Giazmazo. I also used a crime historian article by Ash Woods, a JVMH article by John Frith, and a Gizmodo article by Esther Inglis Arkell. But yeah. I really enjoyed this, you know, little dive into the past. And I think, you know, my next episode, I might do another little history lesson, I assume. But, but yeah, I also, I guess I made an Instagram page and I think I'm gonna, for this, I'll kind of post a couple of the things that I like talked about. And I kind of like made a note to do that before. Be like, oh, be like, plug it like slyly into the middle, you know, but not that good at this. So yeah, I will, you know, Maybe I'll put that in the description too. Check it out. I'll put, you know, pictures on there that I'm referencing, even though you guys probably know what I'm talking about. But either way, thanks for, thanks for, you know, hanging out. I'm like recording this on like a Saturday night at like nine o'clock. And I am so happy to be just in my house doing this right now. Drinking some LaCroix. Probably going to go to bed at before nine again tonight. Great day. It's a great day, people. You know, enjoy the winter. 
Enjoy the old holiday season. Take care of yourself, people. I will try to see you next week. Bye-bye.